Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey, it's Alan Cross, and this summer we thought we would do something special with the Ongoing History Podcast and give you, our fantastic audience, a bonus episode every Sunday from now through Labor Day. We're going all the way back to the spring of 2010 and a 15-part deep dive into the history of Alternative Rock. It's the History of Alt-Rock series. So every Sunday, you'll get a brand new episode of this series that examines every single facet of Alt-Rock from the 1950s right up to, well, pretty much today. And don't worry, because we'll have a brand new episode of the Ongoing History Podcast for you every Wednesday as well. So you're getting two podcasts every week now through Labor Day. I hope you enjoy. And thanks for supporting the Ongoing History of New Music. Every once in a while, humankind has one of those pivotal years where everything changes. 325 AD in the Council of Nicaea, 1215 in the signing of the Magna Carta, the discoveries of 1492, the revolutions of 1789, 1919 in the Treaty of Versailles, the great stock market crash of 1929, the dark days of World War II in 1942, the unrest of 68, the fall of the Iron Curtain in 89, and somewhere in there is 1977. Now, Okay, so to say it was as important to world history as some of these other years might be stretching it a bit, but still, a lot happened, you know. January 3rd, 1977, a new company called Apple Computer was incorporated, and the Apple II went on sale that June. In October, Atari released the groundbreaking 2600 video game console. And in November, Boffins running a computer network called ARPANET successfully tested something called TCPIP which lay the foundations for the Internet. As for music, most of the planet took notice when Elvis Presley died that summer. A big story, yes. But not the music story that I'm thinking about. For that, we have to go to England, where a perfectly good royal celebration was sullied by four clots called the Sex Pistols. And for that, we should be very grateful. This is the Complete History of Alt-Rock, Chapter 5. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. It's from the Sex Pistols. God Save the Queen. Get it on Saturday. The Sex Pistols with God Save the Queen, released on the Virgin label on May 27th, 1977. Still sounds great, don't it? Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is Chapter 5 in our attempt to provide a complete history of what we still call alternative rock. This is an important chapter because, like I said in the introduction, 1977 was a crucial year, especially in the UK. The economy was in the toilet, unemployment was skyrocketing, especially amongst young people, the empire was crumbling, and the entrenched class system was under threat. Yet the British were determined to keep a stiff upper lip. What better way to soothe the subjects than to stage a year-long celebration of Elizabeth II's 25th anniversary of her ascension to the throne? Now, most normal people were only too happy to offer fealty to their monarch. Some, not so much. And this is where we find the Sex Pistols. Ever since their run-in with Bill Grundy on the telly back in December of 1976, the Pistols had become the face of punk rock in Britain. 
and, as far as many people were concerned, emblematic of everything that was wrong with Britain's youth. Now, to imagine the media storm around the pistols back then, think about what it's like when some boy band or other pop star becomes unnaturally huge today. That's what it was like. For a time, the Pistols were pop culture phenomenons. They were fired from two record labels before signing to a third. And that signing ceremony was held on a table right in front of Buckingham Palace. And then they had the cheek to release a song called God Save the Queen, where the words queen and moron get connected. Now, Virgin had a very hard time getting this record pressed. Some records at the manufacturing plant were so offended by it that they refused to go to work. Then the BBC banned it, saying that it was in gross bad taste and possibly in breach of the Broadcasting Act, branding it as a song that actually broke the law. Most radio and TV stations wouldn't even broadcast a commercial for the song. And then most of the big chain stores like Woolworths and Boots banned it. But there was no stopping it. God Save the Queen still managed to sell 150,000 copies in just five days. But the people who published the official record charts saw to it that things were uh, rigged in such a way that the band was denied the number one spot. Instead, the song was listed as the number two record that first week, but even then the chart people couldn't bring themselves to print the name Sex Pistols, so they just left a blank space at number two. Oh, uh, we need to backtrack a bit. By the time the Pistols released God Save the Queen, there was a new guy in the band. Original bass player Glenn Matlock was out apparently because he professed too much love for the Beatles. His replacement was a violent, semi-literate, hanger-on, and sometime drummer and saxophone player named John Simon Ritchie, otherwise known as Sid Vicious. Before I joined the group, I used to be a shop assistant in the, in the sex shop. You've got Malcolm McLaren. I, I went to see them a lot. I, I knew John. I, I, he was an old... Enemy. Uh, enemy of mine from we previous squat together. <laughs> uh, and, we, and he was in this group, and we, we were going, we really hated each other. And, like, I thought, oh, this is going to be a real load of crap, this idiot. So I went along to see this group, and uh, they, they were just like, uh, really wonderful. I really thought they were great. Mainly me. Tell them. I thought he looked like a turtle. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and, <laughs> and like, I just thought, they were the most brilliant group I'd ever seen. You know, I really admired them. They were just, like, so honest. I just couldn't believe it. Like that Bill Grundy thing, I mean, that wasn't put on at all. He asked for it and he got it, you know what I mean? They'd done it in a very, very cl- clever way. They were just themselves. But it they was complete mincemeat of him because he's a total fool. He's growing up and they're kids, so how can he compete? The Sex Pistols released two more singles in 1977. The next one was Pretty Vacant, which came out in June... Right around the time Johnny Rotten was attacked by monarchist hooligans armed with knives outside a pub called the Pegasus. They cut up his left arm so badly that some tendons were ruined. He's never been able to play the guitar properly as a result. And good thing he was wearing heavy leather pants because they were tough enough to deflect a blade from penetrating his thigh. If it had gone through, he might have bled to death. Three days later, he was attacked again. And then someone took a pipe to drummer Paul Cook and went all medieval on his ass. The single after that was Holidays in the Sun. That was in October. Both songs made it into the top ten. Meanwhile, Malcolm McLaren was scheming to make a movie with the Pistols using a softcore porn director and an unknown screenwriter named Roger Ebert. Yes, that Roger Ebert. Meanwhile, if Sid wasn't getting arrested, the band was having problems finding places to play. 
Every time we, we get a gig, you get your local councils banning it and you get no complaints. So, like, there's your local council officials up there thinking, righteous, look at us, look what we're doing for society. Nothing is going to change. Even rehearsing and writing new songs is a problem because you ain't given a chance to do them anywhere. It's my job, and I'm being denied my job. But at the same time, I'm being taxed 80% of everything I earn by people who are stopping me. The councils, they ban my concerts and they take my money. All this without an album. But finally, it happened. The date was November 28, 1977. And in the days leading up to its release, a radio commercial was produced. Notice how the word bollocks is edited out. Just in case some listeners were to find that offensive. Papers, never mind the television, never mind the sex pistols, the first LP. Never mind the, the sex pistols album, the album now. The Sex Pistols, Never Mind the Bullocks, peaked at number one on the British album charts and stayed there for two weeks. It would be the record that defined the original British punk rock era and an album that launched a billion bands around the world. But it would also be the band's only album. Manager Malcolm McLaren had this thing about conquering America, and the Sex Pistols were just the band to do it. Instead, what he got was one of the most disastrous road trips in the history of rock. First, the group's visa applications were initially turned down by customs officials, forcing them to cancel an important appearance on Saturday Night Live. Some guy named Elvis Costello was called in at the last minute. In fact, if you ever see footage of that performance, look for the drummer's T-shirt. It reads, Thanks, Melk! As in, Thanks, Malcolm McLaren, for screwing things up so we get our shot on Saturday Night Live. And then, in some sort of bizarre miscalculation about American culture... McLaren decided that the Pistols tour should be rooted away from major cities and instead plunge through the Deep South. Not exactly an area friendly to the values of punk rock, if you know what I'm saying. It was more awful than you're probably imagining. The crowds were both weird and violent. At the first show in Atlanta, the band was bombarded with, get this, pig snouts. In San Antonio, they threw seafood. In Baton Rouge, it was tomatoes. And wherever they played, there were lots and lots of beer can bombs. Now, Sid Vicious wasn't much help. He spit at everybody, and he picked fights with anyone who looked at him funny. His specialty was swinging his bass like a cricket bat at people's heads. He was such a jerk on this tour that he managed to get himself beaten up by his own bodyguard just a few days in. Meanwhile, knowing that he was too stupid or too stoned to actually play, his amp was never hooked up. Instead, a roadie off to the side of the stage played all of his bass parts. Now, here's a great story from Malcolm McLaren. I'll never forget the day in, in America. I think it was um, somewhere near San Antone on the last ill-fated tour they had that um, 
Sid at that time, of course, got involved in the world of drugs, uh, naturally inclined to develop a taste for groupies and, and one that ultimately, mentally met her peril. But um, uh, he, uh, at that time, was very out to lunch and would only uh, eat Knickerbocker glories and usually three at the, at the, in one go and they would be mounted on the table and um, that day in a little motel type restaurant that we pulled into uh, he apparently um, was sitting near a table where a mother and daughter and father and son were eating their steak and chips and uh, they didn't like the smell that was coming across the table and we of course never sat with him anyway we were quite used to the idea but uh, he was wearing his typical uh, chain round his neck and uh, this dirty black T-shirt that he hadn't taken off for six months. And it had this big swastika on it and his leather jacket. And his feet were black but um, hidden by, by the boots that he wore. And uh, um, noises began to uh, appear from the table of this family and saying rather rude things about our dear Sid and uh, Sid not one to um, stand by um, decided to get up from the table and did a thing you might all reel in horror now he went round to the back of the gentleman that was eating his steak and chips and pulled his sleeve back and threw his arm over and above the man's head and over the the man's plate up fairly high and withdrew a penknife from his pocket and slashed his arm and all the blood blew out like ketchup over the man's steak. Well, you can imagine that place. This was full of very rednecky guys, long-distance truck drivers. I thought we were going to die. By the time the group made it to San Francisco, just 12 days after the tour began, the Pistols were well into the process of self-destructing. The last show was at the Winterland Ballroom on January 14th, 1978. And I need you to check this out. This is the actual recording from that night, the last song in the set. It is the sound of a band dying violently on stage in front of the crowd. Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? Good night. The Sex Pistols were finished, but the punk rock revolution in England had just begun, and no one was going to stop that. No one. Lest you think that the story of the Sex Pistols was the only historical thing of note in 1977, let's just fix that. Yes, they were very important to our history of alt-rock, but we also need to look at a bunch of other developments. Thanks to the notoriety of the Sex Pistols, all of Britain had been at least exposed to punk rock culture. It was hard to keep track of the hundreds and hundreds of punk groups that sprung up, but there were a few special ones that broke through. First of all, there was a dirt-poor four-piece from London. They were so poor that they were once reduced to eating the glue that they used to put up their gig posters. 
The Clash evolved out of a stillborn group called the London SS. They were formed in late 1976 in a horribly rundown squad on Davis Road in West London and were managed by a used car salesman. The last member of the group to join was a refugee from a pub rock band called the 101ers, and he insisted on being addressed as Joe Strummer. His real name was John Mellers, and he was the son of an international diplomat. He had a semi-posh upbringing, but he turned his back on all that, preferring to work as a busker. He got the name Strummer from the way he strummed his guitar with such ferocity. The Clash rehearsed in a building in Camden that featured a jukebox stocked with the latest singles from bands like the Ramones and reggae songs from Jamaican artists like Bob Marley and dub pioneer Lee Scratch Perry. The Clash were particularly fond of dub because it was the music of the immigrants with whom they shared their neighborhood. In 1977, The Clash managed to sign a deal with CBS Records. And when it came time to shoot the cover for their first album, they did it in the alley outside that building in Camden. That album was simply called The Clash, and the date was April 8th, 1977. The Clash, with a song about a London madam who turned into a pop singer in the 1970s. The track is Janie Jones, and it's side one, song one, from their self-titled debut album. Another group that was attracting some attention was the Buzzcocks. We talked about them during Chapter 4. Not all the music from 1977 that had its roots in British punk was aggressive as the Buzzcocks or the Clash or the Sex Pistols. It's important to remember that punk wasn't so much a sound as it was an attitude. That attitude was, if you have something to say and have the guts to say it, then do it. Who cares if you're a good musician or singer? Take, for example, the experience of Declan McManus. He was a computer programmer for the Elizabeth Arden's Cosmetics Company. He became a Sex Pistols fan because he was inspired by their disregard for the rules of music and of art and of fashion, of society, of the class system, of England. Using some accumulated sick days from his day job, Declan recorded a debut album that was articulate, literate, and occasionally angry. And at the suggestion of his manager, he changed his name from Declan McManus to Elvis Costello. That first record was called My Aim is True, and it came out July 22, 1977. The rules for music changed very fast in 1977. Actually, it's probably more accurate to say that all the rules were broken very fast in 1977. What it all meant was that rock and roll was suddenly open to new interpretations by a new generation. See, rock is one of those few art forms that can actually be improved by people who aren't very good at it. If you don't know what you're doing, and if you don't follow any rules, and you let your passions guide you, wonderful things can happen. Yes, you could continue playing two or three chords very fast on loud guitars, and yes, you could wear safety pins and Nazi symbols on your clothes, and yes, you could stop at learning how to pogo when it came to dancing, but why stop there? Up in the city of Walking, Three teenagers started a band during lunch hour. They would meet every day at noon in one of the rooms at the school and just jam. In fact, that's how they became known as The Jam. 
they soon graduated to playing the local pubs, which eventually led to opening slots for bands like the Sex Pistols and the Clash. And the parents of the members were pretty cool because, well, first of all, they were managed by the singer's father. They began as sort of an R&B band, but after singer Paul Weller saw a Sex Pistols show, he steered things in a slightly different direction. Instead of following the let's destroy everything credo of pure punks, the jam also offered respect for the British mod culture of the 1960s. And although the music press insisted on dumping them in with the rest of the punks, this new group would end up carving out a specific niche all of their own. They had the energy and the aggression and the attitude, but they also knew about melody and song structure. And in the end, the jam would become the most popular band to come out of that first wave of British punk rock. By the time they broke up in 1982, they managed to place close to two dozen songs on the English singles charts. Their debut record was called In the City. It came out May 20th, 1977. The Jam and Art School, side one, track one, from their 1977 album, In the City. Now, this might be a good place to mention the role of the art school in England. Once you got out of high school, you had a number of choices. You could either try and find a job, you could go on the dole, you could go to university, or you could park yourself in art school for a while. This is where you could take courses in painting and photography and sculpture and so on. And you can get into an English art school as soon as you turn 16. Now, of course, universities are all about discipline. Art school is about creativity. And naturally, these places are filled with free-thinking people. And to this day, British art schools are breeding grounds for new musicians. It's a strangely British thing that has given us bands ranging from the Sex Pistols, hey, their first gig was at an art school, to Blur and Franz Ferdinand. Now, we could go much deeper into this whole thing because people have written serious scholarly papers about the role of the British art school in punk and rock, but we'll deal with that later. We also have to talk about the influence of the Sex Pistols a little bit more. The Clash were spurred on by the Pistols. Elvis Costello quit his day job because of the Sex Pistols. The Buzzcocks began as a couple of guys promoting Sex Pistols shows in Manchester. Oh, and speaking of Manchester, the Sex Pistols proved to be an epiphany for a young Manchester poet wannabe and New York Dolls fan named Stephen Patrick Morrissey. Still in Manchester, a group soon to be called Joy Division was inspired by a Sex Pistols show. Even the earliest beginnings of the Pet Shop Boys can be traced to what singer Neil Tennant saw and felt at a single Pistols concert. Like I said, 77, very important year. But things were also happening in New York, punk's original birthplace. We'll zoom back across the Atlantic to see what was going on there in 77 in just a sec. 1977 was not a good year for the city of New York. First of all, that summer was unbearably hot. Then there was the big blackout of July 13th, which gave half the city license to go looting. The city itself was in decay and in danger of going bankrupt. And to garnish it all, New York was being terrorized by the Son of Sam killer. A guy named David Berkowitz was going around shooting people because he said he was being encouraged by a demon uh, who lived in his neighbor's dog. It was a very desperate time. Some people chose to ride it out dancing in discos like Studio 54, where they snorted coke in private rooms. Meanwhile, in one of the most desperate parts of the city, people slummed it out, shooting heroin in the bathroom. Ground zero for this was a club known as CBGB. 
This was the home of the Ramones. By the end of 1977, they had released three albums. The third one was called Rocket to Russia, and it came out in November. This is the perfect New York punk rock record. Actually, it could be the most perfect punk rock record of them all. The Ramones from late 77 with Sheena is a punk rocker from their Rocket to Russia album. Now, the Ramones played CBGB more than just about anyone, but they were hardly the only band to play the club. There was the anger and the energy of bands like the Dead Boys, who were transplants from Cleveland. There were the Vile Tones, who had made the trip down from Toronto, apparently robbing gas stations on their way. And then there was John Anthony Gazelle Jr. He used to be known as Johnny Volume, but he was now going by the name Johnny Thunders. Thunders had been a part of the New York Dolls, but had now moved on to a group called the Heartbreakers. Thunders was an incurable alcoholic and junkie. But at the same time, his attitude with a guitar and his presence on stage became a blueprint for future punk rockers. Not all the music coming from the New York Bowery was full of such sound and fury. A more artsy approach was also developing, and it was happening quickly. In fact, this band was from an actual English-style art school. They were formed at a place called the Rhode Island School of Design. Now, at first, the Talking Heads seemed to be the odd band out, a weird choice for a touring partner with the Ramones. But if you took the time to listen, you'd see the same sense of minimalism at work and also that same wry sense of humor. Here, for example, is singer David Byrne's attempt to write what he called an Alice Cooper-type song in the summer of the Son of Sam killings. From their debut album, Talking Heads 77, this is Psycho Killer. There were other new sounds coming out of the CBGB scene, some that were even more pop than the Talking Heads. For example, a group called Blondie was attracting a lot of attention, and they would become a major part in a peculiarly North American phenomenon called New Wave. As 1977 ended, it seemed that music was segmenting into a million different genres. For example, what used to be simple R&B had broken into funk and disco and was about to give us rap and hip-hop. And defining rock was no longer as simple as it used to be. We began to identify separate things as metal, California rock, hard rock, and of course, punk rock. But even these subgenres were starting to have subgenres. Punk was about to undergo a serious bit of evolution that would result in an array of sounds that was so big, it kind of made you woozy, but in a good way. Now, when you heard it, this music definitely wasn't punk. But at the same time, you somehow knew punk had happened. And Chapter 6 will be all about the rise of what North Americans called New Wave. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. Thank you.